Our scripture meditation today gives us an honest opportunity to pray with God without holding back, but really releasing to God the burden that we carry. Our Lord invites us always to share our joys and our laments. And Jesus modeled this when he prayed. Psalm 22 was Jesus' plea to his Father for help from the cross. These words that we are about to sing and pray together are the words that our Lord spoke from the cross when he was suffering. So we're going to pray this prayer now using music and readings from Psalm 22. We'll begin by singing first, and then I'll read and we'll sing again. If you would like to join along by singing, feel free to do that there at home. Oh my God, why have you left me? Why are you so far away? How could you not hear my groaning through the night and through the day? I have called without an answer. I have sought but found no rest. Oh my God, why have you left me? Why are you so far away? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They hurl insults at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord, they said. Let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my heart. My mouth is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far away. Oh, help me. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. And I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. 
all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the afflicted of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. Oh my God, why have you left me? Why are you so far away? How could you not hear my groaning through the night and through the day? I have called without an answer. I have sought but found no rest. Oh my God, why have you left me? Why are you so far away? So this is the second week that we are live streaming worship. It's a new experience for us at North Creek Presbyterian Church. As we looked at some of the statistics that YouTube furnished for us, we realized that if you add up all the devices that logged in last week, there were likely more people watching us on live stream last week than there normally are in worship on a Sunday morning, and that is a delightful thing. What that means is that there's likely some of you watching right now who've never been in this sanctuary before. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Pastor David. Earlier, you saw Pastor Kurt and Pastor Diana has been assisting in worship this morning. So glad that you're here. This morning, in church terms, it's the third Sunday of the season of Lent. And like most of you, I'm finding myself a bit stunned by just how much the world has changed since Lent began on Ash Wednesday, which, believe it or not, was only 17 days ago. It was a more innocent time back then, wasn't it? If you'd told me back on February 26th on Ash Wednesday what things would be like today on March 15th, I would not have believed you. These last two weeks have felt like this daily succession of brain stretches as we absorb, as we mentally adjust to daily changes of an epic scale. Each day, I've told myself, okay, this is as bad as it's going to get. And then I wake up the next day and, nope, it's worse. School closings and public gatherings being canceled. Our own worship services totally redesigned. The NBA season, Disneyland of all things. It feels like the world has gone off the rails. It feels like everything we assumed everything that was steady in our life has kind of been upended. Our economy, our culture, nature itself seems to have come unglued. And then behind every one of those statistics that we hear on the news, behind every cancellation, behind every closure, there are countless stories of disappointment and heartbreak and even grief. That's especially the case for those who have fallen ill, who face the disorienting um, isolation, the disorienting experience of isolation. Um, 
as do, as are experiencing right now, three members of our own congregation. And while our three members face good prognosis, I know that's not the case for everyone. And I grieve for families who are unable to be at the side of a sick, older loved one. In fact, this Thursday, I learned that the 97-year-old mother-in-law of the interim pastor whom I served in New Mexico in 2010 and 2011 is one of California's COVID-19 fatalities. And the family was unable to be with her in her final hours. But even on a somewhat smaller scale, there's a toll. There is a toll right now of hopes and of dreams. I've been hearing about at-risk children for whom daily school is really a lifeline and even an assured meal. But I also think of all the students, all of you students, who are facing that canceled school musical, that athletic season, that final concert, that class trip. These things which you've rehearsed for, which you trained for, that you'd anticipated so much. And then I think of all the waiters, the waitresses, the dishwashers, the stadium workers, small business owners whose livelihoods are hanging in the balance right now. The toll of this crisis, even in a matter of weeks, is simply staggering. And if we're honest, those of us who profess faith in God, to face this much bad news all at once strains our easy answers to the breaking point. It strains our faith in God. And our prayers, which initially are patient and reserved and reverent, begin to take on more urgency and even frustration until we might find ourselves asking God some uncomfortable questions. Why, God, is all of this happening? Where are you in all of this suffering? Are you even listening? You may even be tempted to shake your fist at the heavens as you ask these questions. Well, if so, you have taken a first step across a line into a theological no-man's zone, into a zone in which something almost unspeakable is actually acknowledged, and that's anger with God. And as soon as we even say that out loud, we recoil. It, it sounds wrong. Surely that's not something that's allowed, is it? We can't feel anger with God. And if we do, we certainly can't express it. It's something that we immediately have to quash. We have to bottle up. We have to not mention. While... Our experience of Lent so far has been totally unlike we planned. We are actually working our way through a Lent worship series, and it's titled Forgiveness, the Currency of the Kingdom. And we're looking at five different aspects of this central Christian idea of forgiveness. We started two Sundays ago focusing on God's forgiveness of us, because that's really the center of everything. That is the source of this abundant currency of the kingdom that we get to pay forward. So next week, we're going to be asking how we pay that forward to other people in our lives, especially those people 
who are most hard to forgive. On the 29th, we'll reverse that and we'll be looking at accepting the forgiveness of others. But that leaves one more possibility, doesn't it? This scandalous idea of us forgiving God. This unsettling image that's almost too hot to touch because it implies that we might be angry with God for something that God has done. And I want to say two things about this that stand in tension with each other as we look at this idea of anger with God from two different perspectives. First, from a purely theological perspective, anger with God is not warranted. God is not the source of the bad things that happen in your life or in the world. God is not causing coronavirus. God's not even allowing coronavirus in order to hurt us. This virus is part of a broken world that nature itself is broken since the fall. Nature's complex systems and its intended balance are just out of whack. And the claim of every page of Scripture is that God is instead on an epic mission to heal creation, to set it right, to call it back to its intended flourishing and restore the balance and the health that God originally created into it. And that is the same with all of the other things in your life that are painful and that are tragic. They are not from God. God does not cause them. And so from a purely theological perspective, anger with God is not warranted. However, because of who God is, there is a more important angle to con consider. Because God is at his very triune core relational, because God is a relational God, the relational perspective always trumps the abstract theological perspective. And from the relational ang angle, anger with God looks quite a bit different. Because more than anything, what God wants is an authentic, honest relationship with us. He doesn't want us play-acting. He doesn't want our phoniness. He doesn't want pious platitudes. God doesn't want us only expressing to him the things that we think God wants to hear. No, God wants a full and rich and robust relationship with us. He wants us to be real with him. He wants to know what's going on inside, deep inside our gut. He wants to know how we feel inside, even when how we feel inside is not entirely coherent theologically. Isn't this how it is with the other authentic relationships in your life? That's what God wants. That's what God welcomes and God honors. How do I know this, you might be asking? How do I know that this is what God wants from us? Well, it's the fact that as the Holy Spirit guided the formation of Scripture, he made sure that Scripture preserved abundant examples of a certain kind of prayer. Prayers in which good, 
pious people would look up to heaven and they'd raise their, fear, their fists and they would dare to demand from God, why, God, is this happening? Where are you? Are you even listening? These are the Bible's prayers of lament. Back on February 9th, we looked at one such prayer that was prayed by the prophet Jeremiah. God, Jeremiah said, you are like a deceptive brook that disappears when I need you. But Jeremiah is really just the tip of the iceberg. Of the 150 separate prayer poems that make up the Old Testament book of Psalms, 67 of them, that means more than one-third of them, are prayers of lament. They are prayers in which someone is contending with God, someone is arguing with God, and yes, someone is angry with God. These are right there in the middle of that Bible that you have and that you carry around, put there by the Holy Spirit in order to model for us a mode of prayer that God does honor and welcome. Jesus apparently knew this. It is clear that Jesus treasured and even memorized the Psalms of Lament because there on the cross, he spontaneously cries out this first verse of Psalm 22 that Diana just read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But these Psalms aren't just there for Jesus. They're there for us too. Eugene Peterson a Presbyterian pastor and author explains that these psalms express the language of the gut. They're not the language of the brain. They give voice to what is really inside us, down deep, which is precisely why these psalms can be so unsettling, so unexpected, so uncomfortable. But I think that they can also be liberating because they invite us into a deeper more authentic relationship with God. Now, it turns out that these Psalms of Lament have a characteristic plot line. They have a narrative arc to them. Scholars have noticed that in nearly every one of them, there are five sequential parts, five steps. What I think is kind of interesting is that these five typical elements of a Lament Psalm line up with what we might think of as the unfolding process of forgiveness, as the authenticity, authenticity of honestly expressing emotion results in a restored and deeper relationship. Maybe you already noticed this narrative arc as Diana read through Psalm 22 earlier. So, as a way to approach this strange idea of forgiving God, of being angry with God, I want to suggest these five steps of a psalm of lament as a model for your prayer. In those moments when you find yourself shaking your fists at God, which may well be this week. In fact, we are going to practice doing this in just a moment. But first, I want to look at these five elements. A lament psalm always begins with the person who is praying addressing God directly, calling out to God in person, naming God by name. In Psalm 22, it's those first four words. 
My God, my God. Isn't it interesting that even as the writer is about to unload on God, is about to accuse God of all sorts of failures, he still begins by calling God my God. That relationship there and intact from the beginning. In fact, I'd say it's only in the security of that relationship that it is safe to speak from the gut. Which is exactly what the writer does in the second step. This is usually called the complaint. And this is where the person who's writing the prayer or who's writing the psalm points to this huge yawning gap. It's a gap between what he knows God to be and what God seems to be in this particular moment. You, God, are powerful. You are loving. You are good. You are just. You are present. You keep covenant. So why is this happening? Where are you? Are you even listening? Well, in Psalm 22, the writer names this gap. says, Our ancestors trusted you and you delivered them. So why are you so far from helping me? I cry, but you do not answer. And then later, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my chest. This part of a lament psalm, the complaint, is usually the most jarring part. It's the most audacious part. And then, having accused God of failing to live up to God's side of the bargain, the writer pleads that God make things right. That God show up and be God. This is the request Step, And in the Psalms of Lament, these requests are fairly specific. Maybe healing from illness, maybe deliverance from pestilence. That sounds a little relevant this week, doesn't it? Protection from enemies, restoration of reputation, reversal of some failure. Here in Psalm 22, the writer pleads, Lord, do not be far away. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword and my life. From the power of the dog. And it's at this point, having expressed what we might think is inexpressible, having unloaded on God with accusations and with anger and with pleas, that in nearly every case, the psalm of lament then turns a remarkable corner. Having expressed honest anger, the prayer softens in tone. And the writer expresses bold confidence that God will hear what he is praying. That the angry lament will in fact reach God's ears and that God will pay attention. Maybe you noticed in Psalm 22, the writer is speaking in the past tense, but he's really imagining the future. And he envisions that God did not hide his face from me, but heard me when I cried to him. Which brings us to the final element, which, given the preceding content, is perhaps even more remarkable. The psalm of lament typically ends with a full-throated hymn of praise, with a song of thanksgiving. Again, it's almost as if the psalmist is looking into the future and thanking God in advance for, God, for what God will do because of this honest prayer. Did you notice how Psalm 22 ends? After all 
of the angry words that the psalmist lets loose on God after why have you forsaken me and the ravening lions and the parched tongue, here's how it ends. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. The writer, the person praying this prayer, it would seem, has given the currency of forgiveness back to God himself. And I have a hunch that many of you watching right now have first-hand experience with this kind of prayer of lament. And you've discovered what the writer of this psalm has discovered, that you really can't get to genuine praise. You can't get to a full and rich and deep relationship with God. You can't get to a connection, a meaningful connection to a life-giving relationship with Jesus unless you're willing to bring God what's actually inside of you. Unless you're willing to open your heart and open your gut and let it all hang out. Because it's then that you discover the true scale of God's love in Jesus Christ. And like I say, I know from conversations I've had with many of you that you know what this is like. That you've experienced being angry with God. You have owned your anger with God. You've even expressed that anger. Well, a few weeks back when I asked the congregation if anyone might be willing to share a story about forgiveness from their own life, Ellen Peterson reached out to me and she asked if she might tell the congregation of a time quite recently when she found herself shaking her fists at God. And I'm grateful for her courage in sharing this story with you right now. I am Ellen Peterson. This is my story of forgiving God, which is an unfinished story. Um, it, is, it is a journey from a calling to foster a young girl, a 16-year-old girl, uh, as, as our foster daughter, and a, a calling that I was so sure of and so... Um, I, I was so sure that my husband and I were called to do this. I was more sure of that than I was even of my own name. Uh, even my husband, who's not a believer, was uh, convinced that there was a reason she was put into our care. What happened over the course of four months was uh, traumatic for all of us. Uh, she was uh, suicidal, and we did what we could to keep her safe, which uh, came at a huge cost. Uh, when you have a suicidal person living in your home, you have to evacuate almost everything out of your home, and it's round the clock. Like, we had to lay eyes on her every 15 minutes while she slept, and uh, she, we couldn't leave her alone when she was awake. And the cost that it came with was more than our family ended up being able to bear. In the end, when we made the decision, uh, after me reassuring her that uh, she's my kid and I'm in it with her and uh, that everyone else in her life had abandoned her, but I wasn't going to abandon her. But in the end, I did. Um, my husband and I decided we couldn't take care of her. And that came 
was such a terrible price. It threw our family into a crisis. Uh, my faith and health failed. Um, and it led to a period of deep, deep, deep despair where I raged at God, that the only time I spoke with God was to scream and yell and rage. And how, how dare, how dare he bring this suffering to my children, to my marriage. Uh, it, was, it was untenable. And about two months after we had to step away from being her caregiver, I was working where I work from home and I was listening to music and the song Oceans uh, Where Feet May Fall came on and I just suddenly was overwhelmed with uh, an infusion of love and caring and I remembered praying to God when we first got these girls that I had asked God to use me however he needed to to uh, make sure that they got to where they needed to go. And I didn't conditionalize it with, you know, only if it's easier, only if it doesn't hurt. Because it hurt a great, great deal. Um, and that's when forgiveness started. And the forgiveness has been a journey. Um, it, has, it has now been, been a good while since then, many months. And I no longer scream and yell at God. I'm still very confused, uh, still suffering the aftermath, uh, as is my family. And, but I know that God loves us and that he never wished us to suffer and that sometimes suffering just happens, uh, but he never leaves us. And I'm still trying to make peace with that and, and make peace with God. And um, that's, it's a journey. Thank you.